Hey everybody, Happy New Year, and welcome to another episode of this Poor Pastors Podcast. What you doing here? Don't you have practice? Not anymore, I quit. Oh. Well, since when are you the quitting kind? I want to do something big and something important. I'm not like you. I'm nothing. Just let me be nothing. So where does the power come from to see the race to its end? I believe God made me for a purpose. If you commit yourself to the love of Christ, then that is how you run a straight race. Run in God's name and let the world stand back in wonder. Welcome. Was it as easy as it looked? No, sir. No, no sir, it wasn't. Welcome back. Happy New Year to you, 2021. Oh, I don't know if this is going to be our year or not. I am uh, I'm interested to see what pastoring will bring in this new year. I think in a lot of ways this is going to be a really interesting year. Uh, we had uh, some interesting things. Oh, I just think probably for the last six weeks, things have been, ah, things have been tough. Things have been really tough. And uh, it's our turn, you know. Other pastors and other churches have been going through a really tough time with uh, COVID and the, the restrictions. Our church was uh, spared some of that early on, but uh, this is our time now. So here's hoping that uh, by the end of 2021, we can uh, get back to, to normal. I am refusing to acknowledge a new normal. I am still pulling for and hoping for something that resembles uh, the normal. Uh, but part of me thinks, that uh, that's never coming back. That's a hopeful message for 2021, isn't it? Hey, I am so glad that you joined me in this new season, season number two of This Poor Pastor's Podcast. And I have a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about this year. And I want to let you know right out of the gate that today's episode is going to be a bit longer than the normal episodes that we do. I don't think a lot longer, but a little longer. But you should have been able to see before you even clicked on this one that this was a longer episode. So fair warning. I hope you have time to listen or break it up uh, over uh, the course of a couple of days. Uh, I know time is limited. Just talked about time in the last episode. And I know time is limited. So I appreciate you taking time uh, to or setting aside time to listen to this uh, podcast as we're in uh, episode 21 in 2021. <laughs> How cool is that? Yes. Anyhow, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit today about Romans 14. Uh, some of the frustrations and things that uh, I'm I, that I'm observing as I'm watching friends of mine on different sides of uh, theological aisles and within different uh, areas uh, of uh, church practice and polity and so on and so forth. And I just want to kind of deliver my heart to you and hope that uh, you can gain gain something, encouragement or edification or exhortation from something that I'm going to say today. And I didn't really know of a good title for this. Um, but I think I'm going to call this episode Servants and Brothers Know the Difference. Servants and Brothers Know the Difference. And uh, I was going to call it Why Romans 14 Matters, but I think I'm going to call it Servants and Brothers Know the Difference. A little background. 
About the time that I turned 12 years old, my family was introduced to what is known today as the IFB. That stands for Independent Fundamental Baptist. Um, It was a branch of the Baptist denomination that emphasized the things that were in their name. They were independent, uh, not part of any official denominational hierarchy. They were fundamental, meaning they believed in the fundamentals, though exactly what those were proved somewhat difficult to nail down. Um, The independent nature of the churches meant that there was not a denominational statement of beliefs like with the Southern Baptists and their Baptist faith and message um, and so forth. But most likely, if you had asked, it would have been things that traditionally were associated with the fundamentals, like the virgin birth of Christ, the inspiration of the scriptures, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, the autonomy of the local church. Some would even have called the fundamentals the things that were understood, at least within certain circles, as Baptist distinctives like soul liberty, baptism by immersion of believers only, regenerated church membership, and so on and so forth. Um, And I don't have a problem with any of those things, by the way. I believe them. I still believe them today. In the last couple of decades, at least because I've been paying closer attention then, there has been a fracturing that has taken place within this movement of the independent fundamental Baptists. And a lot of guys, specifically pastors, have been walking away. Within the movement, there are those, um, how, you know, within the movement, there are those that are uh, digging in and doubling down uh, on what they do, what they believe, what they say. Both sides of the issue, those who are leaving and those who are staying, are claiming to be more right than the other one. Now, the side that is leaving often claims that it is because of the overly legalistic mindset of the IFB, uh, an overemphasis on standards um, as being, you know, things like no pants on uh, women and long hair, no long hair on men, uh, no shorts. And I mean, the standards, I mean, it can be as strict as you want it to be. And so they might like overemphasis on standards. Uh, They might leave because of strange positions on Bible translations. And by strange, they mean things like double inspiration and and some of the King James only, um, the radical positions on the King James Bible being the only um, uh, approved word of God. They might leave over dictatorial leadership styles. And also more troubling, uh, they, they might be leaving over the enabling and covering up of emotional and even sexual abuse. And certainly that has, been, that has taken place in, in some contexts. However, the side that is staying claims that those leaving are just looking for an excuse. And that really these people are, they just love to be worldly. They don't care about souls. They want to drink and smoke and party. And they no longer wish to be faithful to God's word as evidenced by their use of Bible perversions, which by which they mean translations other than the King James Bible. Within the groups that are leaving, there are various camps of thought as well. So it's not a monolithic group that's walking away. Some are embracing Reformed theology and a form of church structure that is more closely tied to uh, what we know as Presbyterianism than traditional Baptist polity. Um, Some are embracing what is called uh, by some the hyper-grace movement, the anything goes. You're accepted by God no matter what you do. Um, And so, you know, they're very... um, they're very free in those in those churches, and they they take grace to a to to the nth degree. 
Some are embracing the contemporary model, you know, untucked shirts, faded jeans, a darkened auditorium with platform lights and, uh, and a praise band. Another group that has been growing in popularity within those leaving the IFB is the house church movement, um, with a stated desire to return to the first century church in practice and feel. Uh, and that group often focuses heavily on the first half of the book of Acts as well as the Gospels. Now the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because I wanted to address something that's been nagging at my mind. Most of us, are, most of those leaving the IFB or the legalistic framework churches, and certainly those do exist, I can, and I can testify to it, um, uh, many of those who are leaving are, in my opinion... And that's all it is, my opinion. They are committing the same errors that they are accusing the legalists of doing. In an effort to demonstrate their freedom, they're exchanging one set of rules for another. Now, I would argue that it's almost impossible not to do that, but on the basis of the premise of we want to be free in Christ, their freedom looks an awful lot like a set of rules and guidelines, like the one, uh, similar, although different rules and guidelines, it's nonetheless the same framework. Now here's a question. Is it even possible to live without rules? I mean, don't rules and order continue to assert themselves in any attempt at an organization? Ah, says the house church movement, but we are not an organization. We are a body. Well, what is a body but an organism? And both organisms and organization share the same root meaning. Even to have a church, an assembly of believers, requires organization. Paul said that God put members in the body as it pleased him. Now surely this must mean organization and not random processes. Now, I have a lot of sympathy with the house church movement, and I think that it has a lot of merit. I also believe that in the U.S., we're quickly heading toward a time when if we don't do house church, we won't be able to do church at all. But the point of this episode is not to address the legitimacy of the movement or any movement, whether house church or contemporary church or hyper grace or IFB. The point is to bring to light the fact that I often see the same tendency in all groups. The tendency is to establish a group of rules by which they show themselves to be the most biblical to the exclusion, criticism, or condemnation of other groups. I want to read you an example. Uh, this post is from someone who I am friends with on Facebook and, Facebook, and some of you who listen to this podcast will know the post to which I'm referring. I, I hold no ill will towards this person, and I, I admire them, and I, and I wish them well, but since this post was shared, I wanted to use this as an example. Now, this person used to be IFB, and I can tell you personally, I have firsthand knowledge of this and experience, they were hardcore IFB. And I'll just leave it at that. Now they have found the truth, they claim, and they've started a house church movement. Well and good. Organized religion is the problem, or churches being in church buildings is the problem. House churches are where it's at. Grace reigns and legalism is to be avoided. Right? Here's the post. 
I want to mention that this post was shared publicly, not privately or, or within only the group of friends. It was shared publicly so that literally anybody could read it. So I'm not sharing a private post. Here, here is the post, and it's in the, it starts with the form of a question. Starting a church, in parentheses, an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. That's what they're classifying as a church. So starting a church in 2021, here's the list. Die to yourself. Give yourself to hospitality. The church will be in your home. Have food and fellowship before and after every service. Do not do it if your spouse is not filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Do not collect offerings. The church should have no debts, no internal financial burdens. Only inspire giving to neighbors, friends, and strangers. Do not proclaim yourself as the leader. People generally want a king, but rather point to Jesus as king. Cultivate participation. Do not allow people to give you a title. I, I, I'm going to stop and just ask, how, how are you going to do any of these things if, if you're not the leader? But anyway, do not name the church. Why would you? Uh, do not create a website or social media for the church. Be ready for the church to multiply. Let people go. Never count or keep score in any way. Different, isn't it? Not if you were in China or Turkey or Thailand or Sudan or dot, 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 an elliptical end of quote. Now, there are some things that I agree with in that post. Others uh, that I do not. But it really doesn't matter, does it? The point is, do you see the problem? Do you see the list of rules that were given here? Almost every line is a do or a don't. That sounds very much like legalism. It is as if they are wrong and I'm doing it the right way. They is in, you know, if you want to have a house church, do it this way. This is the right way. Do these things. Don't do these things. And this is an arbitrary list of rules by which you should do it. And then, well, this is the way they would do it in China or Turkey or Thailand or Sudan. Well, the question could be, do they do it that way in China, Turkey, Thailand, and Sudan because they have to do it because they don't have the freedom to assemble? If they had the freedom to assemble, do you think they would continue house churches or would they have buildings? It's a question that we don't have the answer to, but we can make some summarizations. The point is, it's really hard to impose uh, Turkey-style Christianity on 21st century America, but that's the model. But it's hard to get away from those list of rules and, uh, rules and regulations, isn't it? Those who have left legalistic churches and those who are in legalistic churches are making the exact same arguments. Forget the specifics of the arguments. Just listen to this group, to this uh, list of, um, uh, of arguments. Number one, the other side isn't being faithful to God's word. Number two, we are the true church, or we are doing church the true way. Number three, we are the ones whose eyes have been opened. Number four, the other side is destroying lives. Brothers, both sides of the legalistic versus libertarian point of view are making the exact same arguments. 
the ultra IFB are saying that the other, those, those contemporary, those hyper grace, those house church people, um, they're not being faithful to God's word. We are, they're not. And if you listen to the other side of the argument, they're saying those IFB, those legalistic people, they're not being faithful to the word of God, but we are. Same argument. They're saying we are the true church or we're doing church the, the right way. Both sides are saying the same thing. They have different criteria, but they're making the same argument. Both sides are saying we are the ones whose eyes have been opened. We see the truth. We're doing it the right way. The other side is blinded and they can't see what they're doing. One of the classic claims or one of the most consistent ones being made by those who leave the IFB is, well, the IFB is destroying people's lives. And by the way, people in the IFB make the same claim about the contemporary and the grace-type churches. And both sides can trot out their list of victims and, uh, and witnesses to give credence to the fact whoever has the most witnesses wins, I guess. When I was in the hardcore IFB movement, we had people who said, I used to be in this kind of church and my life was destroyed and God has really done a work in my life and brought me into this IFB uh, realm. And then there are those outside of the IFB, they have their list of witnesses of people that say, my life was almost destroyed. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not minimizing the very real damage that I believe has been done to people's lives in some of the most aggressive and fundamental IFB churches. I experienced many of the same things. I could tell you stories. My point is both sides are shouting at the other, making the same argument. Now, is it, each of the arguments are, are being made by both sides and I think the reason for this is twofold. One, it is impossible to follow a path for any length of time that you do not believe is right. The reason they're following the path that they're following, the reason I am following the path I'm following is because I believe that it is right. And it's impossible to follow a path for any length of time that you don't think is right. Only a fool would stay on the wrong path that he knows to be the wrong path. The second reason that I think uh, both sides are making the same arguments is because if you believe you are right, you are more likely to say so. And to point out those who are on the wrong path, usually the one that you used to be on, all right? So we recognize that when I come out of a frame of thinking, when I come out of a paradigm, when I come out of a set of uh, propositional, um, a propositional complex, I am most likely going to um, believe that now I am right you know, amazing grace, I once was blind, but now I see. And now that I see, I'm going to cast stones at those who are still blind. Uh, this is, this is, I think this is human nature, right? So this is what's going on. And that's not in itself a bad thing. I mean, certainly Paul and Peter encouraged Christians to do that very thing. Paul said, you used to be darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And Paul said, in the context of uh, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, the reproving he was talking about was specifically a life lived walking in the light, that that very life of light would reprove the life of darkness. Um, he said things like, in the which ye also walked when ye lived in them. And so 
it is not in itself a bad thing to try to bring light to error that we used to ourselves believe, but we need to recognize that there is an inherent danger in how we go about doing that. So you left the IFB. Good. Just be careful that you don't fall into the very same trap that you think you've left. Within the body of Christ, there are many branches and various levels of understanding and practice. Take, for example, Paul's discussion in Romans 14. Now, the key verse to me in Romans 14 is verse number four, where Paul says this. He's dealing with two things, uh, the observance of days and the eating of uh, meat versus herbs and so on and so forth. But in verse number four, he said, he asks a question, who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master, he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up for God is able to make him stand. So I think that's a key verse to remember in this, that God is the master, that we are God's servants, and it is not my place to judge another man's servant. If they're my servant, that's my responsibility. But if they're not my servant, it's not my responsibility to judge them or to condemn them. That's the master's responsibility. So that's a key verse to me. The key word in the chapter, in my opinion, is found in verse number 10. And it is the word brother. Paul said, who are you that judges your brother? And why do you set it not your brother? So he said, first of all, he's another man's servant. Second, he's your brother. And Paul makes a simple case here. They are another man's servant and therefore another man's responsibility. We know that man is Christ. Number two, they are your brother. And why are you judging and condemning your brother? So you want to worship on Sunday. Cool. You want to celebrate Christmas? Cool. You don't want to celebrate Christmas. Cool. You think you should worship on Saturday? Great. You want church in a house? Awesome. You have a new million dollar building? Phenomenal. I'm saying cool and awesome and phenomenal. I didn't say you were right, and I didn't even say I agreed. I just said cool, awesome. It's good for you. That's your business. It's between you and your master, and I am not your master. And guess what? You ain't my master neither. Certainly there are rights and wrongs. Paul isn't saying in Romans 14 that nothing's right or nothing's wrong, but he's saying leave the decision, leave the deciding, leave the judging, leave the correcting up to the master of the servant. That it's not productive nor proper for two servants to be fighting about who's being a better servant. Let the master decide. There are certain things that are right and wrong. That's a given. And if you think I'm doing something wrong, you could lovingly come and correct me. The Bible teaches us to do that, especially if you're part of my family or my local gathering, but it should be done in love. But here is the thing that happens a lot. I know that, that you are excited about this new truth you've discovered. Your eyes have been opened and you want to, everyone to know about it. You're like the suburban Christian housewife who has uh, just recently started selling uh, Tupperware and you want every, or essential oils and you're just so excited you want to share it with everyone. I know you're excited. Truth does that. 
Even things we think are truth can do that. But listen, just 10 years ago or five years ago or last year or last week, you were as diehard for the truth you believed then and were aggressively preaching it. Now you don't believe it anymore and you found a new truth and you want to share it with everybody. And you're sure that now you have the real truth. But my question is, why are you now so sure that what you believe is, quote, the truth when you were just convinced of the opposite a short while ago? Why not give it time? Follow it through. Test it. And it's reasonable for the rest of us to say, look, I'm glad you found something that you think is just earth-shattering and life-changing. Go ahead, pursue it, follow it. If it's truth, hang on to it. But don't condemn me for not jumping or on board with this new revelation that you've recently discovered. Test everything, Paul said. Hold fast to that which is good. But testing takes time. It's a process. So you left legalism. Great. But don't substitute one legalism for another. You hate the way the IFB criticizes everyone who doesn't agree with them. Awesome. Me too. But why are we then so quick to cast stones at the IFB because we disagree with them? Think the IFB and the legalists spend too much time in their echo chambers? I agree. So then why have we surrounded ourselves with people who think just the same as we do about, the, about them? Isn't that an echo chamber in itself? If everyone around you is agreeing with you and they are all hating on the same group of people, what's the difference? See, sometimes we think we're free, but we're no more free than we were before. We've just changed our set of propositions. And we're sure that our new set of propositions is as right as we were sure our old set of propositions was right. It's hard to escape that, isn't it? Now, someone might say it's impossible to avoid doing this, and I think that's fairly accurate. Someone might also say, well, Mark, you're doing the same thing you're talking about, and I don't disagree with you. But what I'm trying to point out is the danger of pretending that we've left the whole rules and organization and legalism thing. And that we are somehow just purely following Christ, and in Christ there are no rules. I mean, what do you think it means to follow Christ? To follow Christ means he is your master, and he is their master. And to our own master we stand and fall. We are brothers. Our Father can sort it out. Don't just preach grace, extend grace. And also recognize that there are so many different ways to accomplish what God has given us to do. Follow God's leading in your life, but don't judge others by either your liberty or your legalism. Because if you judge others by your liberty, your liberty has become legalism. If you judge others by their, by their legalism, your judgment has become the legalism you so despised. Go your own way. Find your own group. Preach Christ. Follow him. Love those who are different and give them room to be different. If you are truly free from legalism, then be free. 
And that means giving grace even to the legalist who is trying to deny your liberty. Also, I want to encourage you to consider whether liberty and freedom in Christ actually means we should be free from forms and structure and organization. The body wouldn't be much of a body if it wasn't organized. A church is a church because it is organized. Now, can we truly start a church, a local assembly in a home or a building and deny some of the organizational factors that make up a body? Like leaders and financial obligations and structure. If you start a a house church and you resist being the leader, that sounds very pious, but who will be the leader? Well, no one, you say. Really? So if no one is the leader... Are you fine if someone else comes in and starts teaching things that you disagree with and asserts their leadership? Well, of course not, you say. I would tell them that there are no leaders here but Christ. Fair enough. But why should they listen to you? You're not the leader. And what will you do if they don't listen to you? Well, someone says, I won't let them come back. Okay, but isn't that a bit legalistic and dictatorial? You see, Christ is the head of the church. We, we, all, we grant that. Christ, some of us forget it, but I admire you for acknowledging Christ should be the head. Yes, amen. Certainly that is true. But he also said that the husband is the head of the wife. But what if the wife is part of a church? Does that mean her husband is no longer the head? Of course it's not true. Christ being the head doesn't negate leadership in the church, in the home, or in other places as the scriptures clearly state. So you don't want to be called pastor. Awesome. Cool. I get where you're coming from. I myself, when asked, generally tell people they should call me by the name my mama gave me. And I agree that within our fundamental churches, there is too much emphasis that has been placed on titles, especially in the honorary doctorate area. I mean, it's just nonsense at this point. But does that mean that I should shun all titles? Is that what Christ meant in Matthew 23? You know, call no man master, be ye not called rabbi. He said, be not ye called rabbi, which means master. And I take this to mean don't take the title for yourself of master and don't demand it. Then he also said, don't call any man father. But surely that wasn't a blanket prohibition, but it was in the spiritual sense or in the body of Christ sense. Otherwise, how could children identify an earthly man, that the earthly man that they should submit to? Is it wrong for a child? Is it wrong for one of my children to call me father? Jesus said, call no man father on the earth. Does that mean that my kids shouldn't call me father just because God the father is their father? Well, of course not. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And how would we know who Paul is talking to when he said, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath? We'd all have to look around and say, well, I don't know who he's talking to. No one here is called father, and no one ever calls me father, so it must not be me. Surely Christ cannot be condemning the use of titles in Matthew 23. Paul himself said, if a man desire the office of a bishop, that's a position with a title. In Philippians 1.1, he wrote to the saints, and also a title, by the way, and a group that he identifies as bishops and deacons. Peter wrote, he said, I'm writing to the elders among you, which am also an elder. So he identifies himself with the title. 
The position of leadership is biblical and the title of those positions is inescapable. What Jesus was clearly condemning was not titles but the attitude of rulership that some desired and the titles which indicate that attitude. If someone calls me pastor, well, that is biblically what I am. Now, I don't demand it, but I don't discourage someone who lovingly uses it. You know, if someone goes out and becomes a medical doctor, and then they go home and demand that their wife calls them doctor because that's what I am. Well, that's a bit over the top. You, that's gone, that title has gone to your head. But if my doctor comes into the room and in, in, in talking to my doctor, um, he doesn't demand it, but I just say, you know, doc, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? Th that's not wrong in, in, to do that. But if I say, hey, Tom, and he says, excuse me, it's Dr. Tom, I might think, geez, that's gone a little bit to your head. So in the church, if someone says, Pastor, thank you for that message, I'm not going to stop and say, no, under no circumstances should you call me Pastor, my name is Mark. I would just say, thank you for that encouragement. But if they come up to me and say, Mark, thank you for that message, I'm also not going to say, hey, call me Pastor Mark. That also is wrong. We're straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's all topsy-turvy and wonky. I don't demand it, but I don't discourage it when someone lovingly uses it. My brothers, also a title. I'm simply offering my heart to you. I am glad if you are now on a new path that you believe to be more biblical than the last one. Follow it. By all means, but don't judge me for not following your path. And I will try not to condemn you for not following mine. And I will also acknowledge that there is a tendency in all of us to believe what we believe at the time and believe that it is better or more pure than what others believe. But I want to have the grace to recognize and believe that before I believed this and now I have changed. And humility requires that I hold these new positions in humility as well. Let the work speak for itself. Let your, let your fruit speak for itself. And let's keep our eyes on our true master with the full and certain belief that he is watching and he's watching all of his servants and he is able to help even those who hold positions other than our own. If he is their master, then they are my brother. And I'm not supposed to condemn a brother. I'm supposed to love them. Hey, thanks for taking time to stick with me through this little longer episode. Not a lot longer, but just a little bit. There's a lot more that could be said, but I'll probably be in trouble for what I already said. And after, after all, Solomon said, in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. So I better wrap it up. I love you, man. I really do. If you are following Christ and proclaiming the gospel and loving God's people, please keep doing that. Keep seeking truth. Keep helping hurting people. Keep getting excited about it. We need you. The ministry needs you. God bless all the churches in buildings, under trees, and in houses. And God bless his men, who the Holy Ghost has made overseers. Also a title. I'll see you next time, guys. God bless you.